Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. Today, my guest is Managing Editor James Kleiman to give us an update on the commission lawsuits, which seem to be multiplying by the day. James, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, good to be back, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Great to have you back. We need a lot of clarity around you know, the topic that is just on everyone's minds right now, which is those commission lawsuits, because it feels like every day, I know every day we're publishing two, three, four stories on it um, because things are happening so fast. So maybe you can give us the overview this week or the last couple of days. Um, what, what's the newest? Sure. Well, there are two major updates that I think we need to cover. The first is, uh, it's called the Gibson case. It's really a cousin to the Sitzer Burnett case in Missouri. It will be heard by the same judge who presided over the Sitzer Burnett case. His name is Stephen Bowe. He uh, presides over uh, the Fifth, Fifth District Federal Court in Missouri. And it's going to be the same plaintiff uh, attorney. So his name is Michael Ketchmark. And he was very successful in the first case, the Sitzer Burnett case. He won with trouble damages of $5.36 billion judgment. And if you look at the salient facts of the Gibson case, they're almost identical to that of the Sitzer Burnett case. They're essentially arguing that there is a grand conspiracy between the NAR and the, the various corporate brokerages. In this case, and some of, some of the other, but also large brokerages out there. So it's Compass. It's EXP, it's Better Homes and Gardens, it's, you know, United Real Estate is in there. They're more of a flat fee brokerage, similar to Remax in that respect, which was uh, one of the defendants who settled in the Sitzer Burnett case. And then also, interestingly, there's Redfin, which makes an appearance as a defendant in the uh, Gibson case. So I want to go over a couple of the main differences. The first is, I just mentioned it, Redfin. So Redfin, I think, is the most interesting player in all of this, in that you look at the defendants in the first case in Sitzer Burnett, they're all traditional full service brokerages. They all do, I think it's fair to say, a good amount of like middle and upper end, you know, real estate transactions. Certainly anyone at anywhere is more likely to be sort of operating in that upper tier than a lot of the other brokerages. Um, but Keller Williams also has a ton of top producers who are doing, you know, million dollar plus deals pretty regularly in a lot of major markets, right? So Redfin doesn't do that kind of work. Redfin, I think most consumers know them best maybe as a real estate portal, right? Something similar to Zillow or CoStar perhaps, right? But Redfin also has a brokerage operation. They have quite a few agents. I think it's more than 2,000 agents and they're salaried. And Redfin is offering discounts on the sell side for those buyers. Uh, I'm sorry, for those sellers. However, I think the main reason that you're still going to see a company like Redfin named, you know, a company that is probably more than any other real estate brokerage argued in favor of transparency on commissions that has criticized some of the structures that have been arguably put in place or enforced by the NAR and the various MLSs and, and kind of related associations. Redfin is absolutely been the most outspoken. They were among the first to say, 
you know, we don't even need the NAR. Our agents do not have to be members of the NAR. They don't have to be members of these associations. You know, let's let's wash our hands with the NAR and and a lot of their silly policies that we think don't really serve the consumer or our business, right? So having taken all of that into consideration, I think the average person's probably like, why would the plaintiffs in this case name Redfin of all the brokerages, like arguably the only one that would probably agree with most of their positions is Redfin, right? And so yet they're named as a defendant in a $200 billion lawsuit with trouble damages could be 600 billion, right? So here's the main reason, really probably the only reason, even though Redfin is giving a discount to sellers, Redfin is also paying the standard, whatever the standard might be, depends on the market. They're offering, generally speaking, the average commission on the buy side. And that's the heart of this case. It's the heart of the Sitzer Burnett case, that there is a horizontal conspiracy amongst these brokerages and the NAR and de facto the associated MLSs to force sellers to pay buyer agents via buyer brokers. And Redfin does absolutely engage in that. In the past, Redfin has said that, look, we need to pay on the buy side because that is where the marketing is. We need to ensure that these listings are getting views, that our our agents also have access on the other side of it, right? So in that respect, it's not actually surprising that Redfin is named as a party to this lawsuit. I mean, really, if, if you look at it, basically somebody just went up and down the list and said, okay, these are the biggest real estate brokerages in the country. They have all obviously transacted in, in Missouri, but also beyond Missouri. And they do engage in compensating buyer brokers and buyer agents. And so you're on the hook. You know, you're named as a defendant in this case. So one of the things I wanted to ask you, because um, I you you sat in the Missouri courtroom for that last case and heard a lot of the testimony. I was there for the closing arguments and the verdict. But one of the things I was surprised at, and, and I asked the different lawyers and they said, yes, um, they could have done the the jury could have done a carve out and found each of those, you know, you could find some people. Um, had conspired and some people hadn't. And so I wonder, you know, if, if I'm Redfin in this next trial, if it goes to trial, um, I'm, I'm going to really try to distinguish myself in these different ways that you've talked about. Um, did you see that in the first trial? Did, did you feel like the, the different parties really tried to make it show how they were different maybe from the other ones? Uh, I didn't see a heck of a lot of distinction in the arguments that Keller Williams and Berkshire Hathaway Home Services made. I mean, they, they basically argued, I think, in, in my view, credibly, that there is no conspiracy because they have never had any conversations of this nature with the NAR or even, you know, at the broker level, right? They, they would basically say the managing broker at whatever franchise this is, they make those decisions, you know, and like, yes, it may be, in fact, the case that the average Keller Williams agent is making, you know, two and a half percent or whatever it is, but that's not because Gary Keller said, I need all of these agents to be making two and a half percent. And I talked to Gino Blafari and he agreed with me. And like, these are also, you know, people that have not really participated much in the NAR. <laughs> so I, I found it difficult to prove that there was a conspiracy. And, and I've argued pretty consistently in, you know, throughout this trial and, and after the verdict that the jury recognized a pattern and said, 
all of these individual companies and organizations have in effect, I mean, the, the word of the plaintiff would be colluded, if not conspired. Um, and that in terms of practice, what you see is the stickiness in commissions and how could one not conclude that there is some sort of conspiratorial element to it. And, and like my interpretation is obviously quite a bit different than that of the average Joe in Missouri who ultimately makes the decision. Um, but yeah, I, I think Redfin is really the only brokerage that is named to the Gibson case or even the Sitzer case, if you wanted to, to really stretch it, that has a credibly different business model. Like they're the only one that is salaried agents. They're the only one that, in pretty much every situation is going to be offering the seller a big discount. I think even if a def- even if a jury were to find that Redfin in the end did de facto conspire with the NAR or whomever else is is ultimately named in this lawsuit, I think it would be harder to prove the damages, right? Because that's a big part of it is the calculation. If if you look at the the totals, like you'd have to look at the number of transactions the dollar volume that those brokerages in effect made during, you know, whatever time period the trial is. In this case, it's 2019 to present. And then you'd have to basically divide it by the number of sellers. But if you do take into account an X factor, like, well, all of these sellers got one and a half percent, you know, lower than anyone at Compass did or anyone at EXP did, then I think at least Redfin would be on the hook theoretically for much less money because the seller doesn't have the extent of the damages that they would for a full commission brokerage. I think, I think, and, and I'm not a legal scholar. I am not a lawyer. I almost took the LSATs, but ultimately did not go that route. So do not take my legal advice, please. I'm just a guy on the internet, but I think Redfin is going to settle. Redfin says publicly that they have very good defenses, that they feel very confident in the decisions that they've taken, that they don't have the exposure that maybe the plaintiffs in the Gibson case say they do. Um, But they've already, in effect, agreed to do a lot of what the other companies did in those settlement agreements. And so I think it's certainly a distinct possibility that they look at the dollar figures and say, you know what? If we can get away from this for like just to spitball a number out there, $70 million, like that might be worth it, you know, worth not dealing with the aggravation, the headache. But I mean, I'm not Glenn Kelman. I, I don't, I don't make uh, any of these sorts of decisions, but I, I think there's a very good likelihood. I think a better likelihood that Keller Williams uh, and BHHS um, or any of the other more traditional well-resourced brokerages that are very much part of kind of that traditional real estate model would fight it because their identity, their business model depends much more heavily on it than a Redfin does. I think those are really, uh, I know that you're not a legal scholar and and uh, neither of us are giving legal advice, but but to me that seems spot on because they do seem different in kind. And, you know, if they don't settle, if I'm them and I go to trial, I am trying to distance myself and distinguish myself from everybody else. Because how can it be a conspiracy if I'm if I'm doing something completely different than everyone else? Right. Yeah. The, the other notable thing I, I think we have to mention is 
the original case, the Sitzer Burnett case, was about 500. The class was about 500,000 home sellers between, if memory serves, it was like April of 2015 through, I think it was October of 2019. And if you look at the Gibson case, one, it's from 2019 through present, as I already mentioned, but the class is not just 500,000 home sellers in the state of Missouri who would be getting like $3 per household or whatever in damages if it's approved. The lawyers get all of it, right? Um, not all of it, but, but a, a steep number. In the Gibson case, it is a national case. And so it includes a class of, I don't, I don't know what the numbers are right now off, off hand, but I mean, it's infinitely more than 500,000 over the span of like a couple of years, right? So that means that the potential damages could swell to $600 billion, at least by the telling of the plaintiff's attorney, Michael Ketchmark. I mean, that would, there's not a single organization that would ever be able to sustain such a, a financial loss if that were to come to pass. Not that it would, I've never seen a $600 billion judgment um, period, right? Like that's, that's like, you know, almost not, not a made up number, obviously, but um, it, it defies imagination in practical t- terms. Um, but, you know, they, they would certainly be extracting a much bigger pound of flesh in settlements as well, right? Because you have to assume that they're looking more than just Missouri. They're looking at more than just Illinois, where two of the other cases are are located. Um, so I, I think it could be that the stakes are a lot higher. And also, like if you think about it from just the perspective of leverage, the plaintiffs have a lot more leverage than they did two months ago before trial, right? They've already got a verdict. They already have also a huge amount of interest. We've been covering this because we're a trade publication. We cover real estate and housing, but it has been covered in every major publication in America. There are a lot more people that know about this than I think otherwise would have ever heard of, of such a, a ruling or, you know, a potential lawsuit that they could participate in. Right. So we know there are going to be a bunch of other copycat lawsuits as well. So I think they're going to be a lot more likely to settle um, than take the risk that Keller Williams and Berkshire Hathaway Home Services took. Such a great point. I was at the dentist uh, last week and um, my dentist and I had this very long conversation or at least as much as I could do while he was in my mouth. (laughs) It was, you know, but, but he knew all about the case. Like he knew all about it. He's my dentist. Yeah. And he does, you know, he's a very small time real estate investor, but you know, and he, he had talked to his whole staff about it. And we, I mean, I just, I was just surprised, but to your point, like this has definitely reached the the larger consciousness. It's not just an industry thing. And I think, you know, part of it is if they're going to have this biggest, uh, bigger class, which obviously you said so much bigger, then that is a, um, that's a shift for the de- defense and for the plaintiff's attorneys, because one of the things Ketchmark did in the closing was talk about, you know, as, as, you know, imagine the plaintiffs, you know, walking down this farm road and opening their mailbox and getting this refund that they, you know, deserve and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, if I'm the, def- if I'm the defendant's lawyers, I'm like, listen, here's how much everyone's going to get. And that guy over there, he's making, you know, X number of millions of dollars off of this. Let's get right to the point, you know? And it's also like, it's not just your farm person. It's not your, you know, 
their neighbors, the Missouri people, the people sitting in the front row, the pla- uh, the plaintiffs. So, uh, you know, I, I expect to see some differences and maybe, you know, people are, ha- are, are pouring over that trial and being like, here's what we're going to do different this time. Yeah, I, I think that's that's probably true. And, and it's also worth noting that there is going to be different evidence that is entered. So although the Sitzer-Burnett case does set a precedent and I think does tip the scales in favor of the plaintiffs because they've already won, right? Uh, and, and it's really up to the NAR and the defendants to find legal recourse through an appeals process because someone misinterpreted or didn't enter evidence as they were supposed to, or there was some sort of bias, or there was a juror who was secretly you know, uh, I don't know, a plaintiff in another case suing the NAR, you know, something crazy like that, right? But there's now so much more that you have to consider when you think about the national implications. And so there's two other major cases that that I do think we need to talk about. And and the first, um, why don't we talk about one today, because we're already uh, at at the 16-minute mark, but it it is sort of... um, a phoenix of an earlier case. It's called Batten 2, filed in Illinois, and where Gibson and Sitzer Burnett take the position that it is the home seller who has uh, suffered damages because the NAR and these brokerages have conspired to either inflate commissions or stabilize them. And as the price of the home has gotten more expensive, you know, the cost of the commission has gotten, you know, disproportionately more expensive as a result, right? And and so that's a, a seller-specific case. The plaintiffs don't care about how the buyer might have been injured, if at all, right? That's not their position. That's not their argument. Um, that's what makes the Batten 2 case really interesting. It also names firms like Douglas Elliman and Compass and EXP and a bunch of the big, big brokerages. I think Better Homes and Gardens might be in there. and um, and their position, though, is that it's the buyer who has suffered damages because they are buying more expensive homes as a result of these conspiracies through the NAR clear cooperation rule that have kept the price of the home up and up and up and up and up. I have argued in the past that even if you agree that commissions have, you know, disproportionately risen, you know, relative to home prices in a way that I think some people would recoil at, you know, if you sell a million dollar home, are you really paying like that much in commission? Like that's crazy to pay $60,000 for what in some cases could be like, no joke, like a day or two's worth of work, right? Like that to me is nuts. Um, But that's not the reason the house was a million dollars, you know, the house is a million dollars because we have structurally underbuilt real estate for more than two decades in this country. And then the Fed went absolutely berserk and decided that like interest rates didn't exist for a while. And then suddenly interest rates should be as high as they've been in, in you know, decades. And the suddenness with which they did it absolutely creates like incredibly chaotic market conditions like that's why the house is a million dollars. You know, those primarily those two things. It's not because a real estate agent, you know, managed to get 60 grand, which by the way, like goes to the brokerage in part, like let's say 15 to 20 to 25% of that goes to the brokerages anyway. And then the real estate agent also has to pay taxes, right? The real estate agent has to pay their own expenses related to that. I mean, not that the buyer or seller should care 
what the real estate agent like, you know, has to deal with in terms of their health insurance. But, but that is how you calculate the cost of the commissions. If we're just honest about how it works. So, I mean, look, it's an argument. It's, it's also a national case. This could be just as big, if not bigger than the Sitzer Burnett and the Gibson cases. It's filed in Illinois. We are a very long ways away from a trial. I hesitated to call it a copycat because they had already filed this, you know, uh, before the the verdict of Sitzer Burnett. But again, I, I do think that this represents yet another very significant threat to the industry. And it's going to be different evidence. It's going to be different classes of potential plaintiffs. It's going to be just a lot more, um, a lot more threat. And then the other main component that we haven't gotten to that is every bit as important, arguably more important, is the fact that the Justice Department, we know, has taken an interest in the Sitzer Burnett case. Uh, we have heard uh, rumors, we've heard rumblings that the CFPB might be taking a look at some of the real estate commission practices that have been established in this country. There are just in every direction, if you're the NAR or if you're an MLS or if you're a traditional brokerage, there are threats in every direction. And I, I think at least some of them are statistically likely to stick in some way, shape or form. I think the organization under the biggest threat is the NAR, undoubtedly. Uh, by the way, Donna Glantz just announced that she is retiring. She's the head of HR at the NAR, which has had, you know, uh, quite a few um, public relations disasters, even accepting their, their um, you know, legal issues related to the commission cases, all the sexual harassment and NDA issues that they have, um, you know, certainly – it's an organization that I, I think one could envision in a couple of years. Maybe they run out of money trying to appeal these cases, right? Because we're only talking about the bonding in the Sitzer Burnett case, which could be hundreds of millions of dollars. What if they lose another case? What if they lose Gibson? What if they lose, uh, you know, the Batten case? They don't have enough money. Like they literally wouldn't have enough money to appeal any of those other cases. So, Maybe the NAR needs to be torn down and, and reformed in, in another version. Maybe they end up not being able to provide the advocacy that the industry says it needs. So I, I think that is probably the biggest domino. And all of this is going to be, uh, you know, it, it's pretty fuzzy right now. But once we get the ruling from Stephen Bow, the judge in the Sitzer Burnett and the Gibson case, as to the injunctive relief in the Sitzer Burnett case, basically what happens to the NAR rules, um, that will, I think, really set the stage and that'll determine the leverage that um, either the plaintiffs or the defendants have in all of these other cases. Hi, listeners. HousingWire's Tech 100 is the most prestigious tech award program in the industry, recognizing innovation in mortgage and real estate since 2014. Nominations for 2024 will be open from November 14th to December 15th, and you can get all the details and apply at housingwire.com slash tech100.
you know, we know that our audience is um, just, they want to know what's next because it's so crazy. So Justin O'Neill, he is the director of PR and communications at Fly Homes, reached out to me yesterday. Um, I hear from a lot of our um, readers, a lot of our listeners, and he had some great questions. And I wanted to pose one of those to you. You know, his overall question is like, what in the world is going to happen next? I think that's how people feel, you know, a lot of people feel. And even like uh, one thing, one comment he made was like, you know, are we at the point where, you know, the uh, NARS next annual convention, which is next week, is that going to be like the last one ever? I mean, that's how people are thinking about like, like how, how does this go? But I thought one of his really um, good questions was, does this end with the MLS is completely detaching from NAR? I think it could, you know, certainly the MLS is, they are named as a potential defendant in uh, the Batten two case. There are what, 500 something, you know, realtor owned associations. And, and we've already seen some consolidation. We already know of at least two MLSs that have, in effect, gotten rid of some of the NAR rules that are tied to commissions. And, and Brooklyn Hahn, our lead reporter on these commission cases, just wrote about it yesterday. Uh, definitely encourage everyone to take a look at that. The MLSs say that they're always going to have the value because in the end, you know, I think if we're honest with ourselves, most of the people who join the NAR do so not because they have some great interest or love of, you know, professional development opportunities or training or whatever. They do it because they need to access the MLS. Um, and if you continue to keep the assumption that as a practice, a selling agent or the seller themselves, somebody on the sell side, depending on, you know, the legalities, compensates a buyer's agent. And that is a good practice because you are incentivizing them to bring clients who would be interested in owning that home. That is still a good practice, regardless of what happens with the NAR, regardless of what happens with their rules, assuming that the law in the land is that it is acceptable for a seller, maybe through a concession, maybe through something else, is able to pay the buyer's agent I still think that is going to continue. And I don't think the MLS is any, you know, any weaker as long as people still see the value in that. They may not see the value in that for every transaction. It might be that whereas now we have what I think it's like 90% of transactions, you know, essentially use that more traditional system. It could be that, you know, the people who are getting the less expensive homes that are first time home buyers that need down payment assistance or need an FHA loan or you know, are struggling to make it, don't have the money, don't have the leverage um, to force a seller to, or incentivize a seller to pay their agent representative, or they don't even have one, right? Um, I think in a lot of those cases, maybe some of those cases won't have, you know, that traditional, you know, cooperative compensation practice. Well, that's not a huge segment of the market either, right? You know, we're talking about maybe going from 90% to like 75%, maybe 80%. And it doesn't all, it doesn't like happen in a flash either, right? Like real estate is such a slow thing. Even, even in like the fastest home transactions that we covered during the crazy days of the pandemic, when there were people who were bidding like $300,000 over ask in Nashville, right? Like you think those closed, closed in like three weeks? Like, no, it probably took a lot longer than that even. So, you know, the, these things take a while to, to kind of evolve. And so 
I think the agent is still very much going to be a vital part of the transaction. I think the NAR and the the kind of hold that they have over the MLSs through the rules that the MLSs are required to follow, I think that hold could be broken um, in the next year or two. I think the NAR will, even if it loses in, in these court cases, you know, reform into some sort of an advocacy uh, group because the the real estate brokers and the agents still have a very strong political voice. And you have, what, two and a half million agents and appraisers and commercial brokers, and they're in every community in America. And they have fought for a lot of very important issues in real estate and been very successful in some of those. So maybe it becomes like a super PAC, right? Maybe there's another form that the NAR kind of, you know, morphs into, but I, I think it is a very distinct possibility that the NAR, as we know it, is both sort of a policymaker, de facto regulator, or like self-regulator of the industry, and then also this very powerful political entity that has a lobbying might, could no longer be that really, you know, self-policing entity going forward. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, I appreciate you uh, taking one of our listeners' questions. We'd love to hear from people. Sure, yeah, I'd love to hear more. If there are more listener questions, you know, please send them to Sarah or send them to, to me and, and we'd be happy to answer them in the next podcast. It's easy. It's just Sarah at hwmedia.com, James at hwmedia.com. And we talk to people all the time uh, and, we, and we love that. So James, the last question I had for you, and I know we just have a few minutes, but it's like, you know, everyone's wondering, like, when we find out what the injunctions are, what, you know, what's the next step? How, when are we going to know what's really happening, even with the Sitzer Burnett case? The best assumption I could make is very likely to be this year, whether that's tomorrow, whether that's next week, a couple of weeks from now, maybe before the holidays. I wish I could answer that. We don't have a lot of visibility into why Judge Bo you know, decides to hold it on, you know, Monday the 13th or not, or any other date. Um, I think some of it is going to hinge on the settlements because Remax and Anywhere already settled, right? Remax settled for, I believe it was 55 million and Anywhere for about 84 million. And those need to be approved. The other thing to consider here is I know I keep throwing all these variables in, um, but the DOJ intervened in another commission case where they felt that the parties that settled with the plaintiffs who would argue that there was a conspiracy on commissions and right, same, same stuff, um, that that argument was not good enough for consumers. So the DOJ is intervening and saying, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. Um, let's take a step back here. We want to have a seat at the table. I think it's very likely that um, the DOJ would intervene in the Sitzer Burnett case as well. So that could delay everything if the Sitzer Burnett case is, is essentially determined by the DOJ stepping in and saying, you know, I think if we have injured class or, you know, an injured class, maybe they need more than a couple bucks per household. Maybe they need a hundred per household. Maybe they need, you know, like whatever they determine is appropriate in terms of a settlement, um, you know, that would need to, to wind its way through the court system. And then that could spark new litigation. At the end of the day, Sarah, these cases are going to go on for a while, either until the NAR and, and the industry somehow run out of money to appeal them or because 
there is federal legislation or because, um, you know, there's injunctive relief and that sets um, a new practice. Forget about the legality of it, but that creates a new practice in, in real estate. Uh, and, and then that, of course, triggers potential, you know, losses of agents. We've talked about in the past that a million agents could wash out if, you know, buyers have to compensate their own. Um, I think that's a little high actually, but you know, that, that is absolutely a possibility. So yeah, everything is going to come down to injunctive relief. And I think he'll probably, my, my guess, you know, like you, you have to guess the way to the pumpkin right at the pumpkin patch. If I'm going to put a, a date on it, I would say like, hold on, let's, let's pull up the calendar here. I'm going to say it's before Thanksgiving. Because nobody wants that to dominate their, uh, their party. So I would say, I'm going to put a number on, I'm going to say the 23rd of November. So that's my, that's my guess. This is a total guess. I have no inside information here. Please don't be mad at me, people. This is just a guess. <laughs> it's kind of like the guess your weight thing. You know what I, I mean? We're, we're guessing here, yeah. but. Uh, <laughs> we'll guess like the jelly. But, the but I appreciate yeah. you. <laughs> I appreciate you even, uh, you know, hazarding a guess because it is, it's just really hard to understand. I think, you know, especially like it, things are just happening so fast. That it's like, wait, I, I, now we have these two other cases, but I still don't even know what happened in the last one. So I appreciate you coming on, uh, bringing insight and just giving us, you know, the update. So people are more informed, um, James, and thanks for, you know, all the work you're doing and the newsrooms doing Berkeley Han and others to, to keep up with everything that's going on. Cool. Thanks so much, Sarah. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show or leave a comment. We'll see you back here on Monday for more news and insight.